Well, good morning on this uh, Super Bowl Sunday, one of the new high holy days of the uh, calendar. Occurs to me some of you may be here praying for your team, so um, whatever it takes to get you here, I guess I can live with that. And uh, I, I, uh, I am aware that, that that's motivation for many and that this is a, a significant day for many. It's actually a significant day for another reason, and that is that we are headed towards communion. And I am hopeful, because today's message really is, is a long entrance ramp to that, I'm hopeful that some of these things go a little bit um, deeper into your soul this morning. So let me back up and say that um, from time to time, I run across an article about logos. Uh, I don't think much about them, but there'll be an article talking about what makes a good logo, and usually there's a list of all the best logos, and that list uh, that all, almost always has pictures of all these logos. Can we put that slide up? So you see these logos, and I always look at it and go, yeah, I think those are all the big logos, except that you're missing the biggest logo of all, the most iconic, the most universal, the most simple and yet symbolic logo of all times, which would be this logo. Now, you may not have thought about the cross as a logo before, and I'm not suggesting that there was some you know, branding meeting where the disciples met and looked at sketches and were trying to pick which one they were gonna go with. Uh, if there was that meeting, undoubtedly one of the other nominations would have been this picture here, uh, which you may have seen and wondered why is a fish this Christian thing. So the letters inside this fish uh, spell the Greek word ichthus, which is fish, and each of those letters the first letter is the first letter of the, the statement, Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. So those letters make the Greek word fish, and therefore fish was also a symbol for Christ. But obviously the cross won. It became the logo. And you see crosses now everywhere today. It's necklaces, it's jewelry of other sorts, it's tattoos. And that's a little odd, actually, because the, the cross was a symbol of death and torture. It was sort of the first, sort of the, the, the 21st century equivalent, or the first century equivalent of, a, of an electric chair. Except it was worse than that because an electric chair is pretty quick death, and the cross was designed to be the, the, the most wicked, a horrible, slow, painful, shameful, public, humiliating death possible. The Romans had lots of ways they could kill you. They could cut your head off. They could feed you to wild animals in the arena. They could light you on fire. Uh, but they reserved crucifixion for slaves because it was so horrendous. And they were an economy that depended upon slaves so they were constantly living in fear of a slave revolt. And so what they had to sort of advertise what would happen if you were a slave and you, you acted up was crucifixion. And in 71 uh, BC, Spartacus led a slave revolt. And as a, as a result of that, the Romans crucified 6,000 slaves and left the crosses lined up along the roads for months to sort of advertise, 
this is what happens to you. And again, it was a slow, painful, horrible death. And it was so bad, Roman citizens could never be crucified. And Cicero would write that, that a Roman should never even think about or ever write about crucifixion because it was beneath them. And the Jews, by the way, agreed. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so for them, crucifixion was, was the worst way you could die because it suggested that you were cursed by God. And so everybody's against crucifixion. And yet, it becomes the logo for Christianity. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens because Christ is crucified. And in fact, it is the crucifixion of Christ that is sort of the literary climax of the entire Bible. Everything in front of it is sort of pointing forward to Christ's death, his resurrection as well, but more centrally his death. And everything after Christ's death is pointing back to it. It is the hinge point of everything. Most people who are famous are famous for what they did, not for how they died. Even people who die notable deaths, uh, an assassination like Martin Luther King or Kennedy or Lincoln. Even people who, who have sacrificial deaths are, are usually not noted for their death, they're remembered for their life. And yet Jesus, who I've argued previously, is the most influential person to ever live is most known for his death as a slave. Uh, this shameful death. How does that happen? Why is the death of Jesus Christ so important? Well, that's what we're gonna take up today. So this is this series planted. We're looking at the 40 big topics. The 40 sort of foundational, pivotal, most significant uh, topics that are designed to sort of undergird the Christian faith. Um, you, have a, you have a loop that sort of plays in your head. You have a set of assumptions that are always in the background about what matters and what the good life looks like and how you should make decisions and what's gonna happen to you. And, and that's really what we're trying to rewrite. <laughs> well, what this is, is this is all subterranean stuff upon which you build your life. We all have a set of assumptions about certain things and, and we've gotta get those things right. And so we're looking at these pivotal, foundational, most significant truths. And one of them is why did Jesus die? A few weeks ago we looked at who Jesus was, Two, last week we looked at what he taught and today it's why did he die? Now, I'm gonna suggest there's a one big reason, but you ought to know that if you go home today and Google, why did Jesus die? You're gonna see all kinds of things. So let me say, some of them were not really interested in this topic. If you Google, why did Jesus die? Some people will say, well, Jesus died because he ticked off the wrong people, which he did. He gets sideways with the Jewish religious leaders for claiming to be God. Uh, they would, would have stoned him if they were in control, but they weren't. So they turn him over to the Romans, and the Romans, especially Pilate, are persuaded that Jesus is too destabilizing of a force to leave around. 
And so Jesus is sideways with the wrong people and consequently he's put to death. But that's not what we're talking about. Other people are gonna say Jesus died because he was crucified and you don't survive crucifixion. And that's also true. Uh, Eusebius in the third century was a, a Roman historian and he writes and gives us some description of crucifixion. Enough, by the way, that Mel Gibson could make his movie and sort of demonstrate how horrific crucifixion was. You, you don't survive it, uh, and that's true. By the way, just as a reference point, if you're being crucified, mostly you're gonna die of suffocation. So you're, you're suspended uh, this way, and you begin to slump, and you can't catch your breath. You can't, you can't get your diaphragm to exhale so that you can inhale. And so one of the things that they would do sort of mercifully at some point is they would break people's legs because then you, the only way you get a breath is if you could pull yourself up with your arms, you can't push yourself up with your feet and so it would speed up the death process. You could, you could be crucified for days, uh, naked, in a very public setting, dying slow, painful death. And so uh, if they broke your legs, that was sort of speeding things up, but it was a horrible way to die. If you're being crucified, you're, you're almost certainly gonna die. Yes, Jesus dies because he's crucified. That's not what we're talking about. We're looking at what theologians refer to as uh, theories of the atonement. So in the 15th century, uh, a, a guy by the name of William Tyndale who is translating the Bible out of Latin into English so more people can read it, he runs across a word, and the, and the New Testament is written in Greek, but they haven't gotten back to the Greek at this point, so they're looking at the Latin, and there's this word, uh, reconciliatio, and he, he needs a, an English word for it, and you would think that the English word would be reconciliation, uh, and some went that direction, but, but Tyndale and others agreed with him. The, the, the word here, the meaning here is bigger than simply how, how are we reconciled to God? Like if you're, if you're sideways with somebody, what is a reconciliation gonna take? But, but Tyndale said, there's more going on here. How does it actually happen? Like how is the death of somebody else reconciling you to God? What is going on here? So, so he uses the word atonement. To at one meant is the way some people would look at that. How do we become one? How do we gain that kind of communion again with God? And, and there have been a number of people who are always trying to distill this down, exactly what it is that happens to lead to at-one-ment with God, atonement with God, reconciliation with God. And as it turns out, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, you see a lot of the New Testament is talking about the death of Christ. And there's all kinds of different metaphors that get used. There's, there's a ransom being paid to someone so that a slave can go free. There's a, there's a, there is some sort of uh, bond being posted in a court so that a guilty person will be, will be allowed to leave by a judge. There's a victory over evil that is happening. And all these different metaphors in the Bible all sort of, they suggest that different things are happening. And so you end up with lots of different theories. There's the penal substitution theory, which says 
Jesus is substituting himself and paying our penalty. There's the Christus Victor theory that says that Jesus is victorious over death or evil. There's the moral influence uh, theory that says Jesus is gonna be our example. He's showing us that we should, we should serve and suffer for other people. There's all these different theories. And, and so what I, what I wanna do is I wanna focus on the one that I think is the most significant and that leads us into communion. I think, and you, I mean, you could probably start a fight in a seminary lounge if you walked in and you said, I think that uh, Augustine's theory of satisfaction for atonement is better than Gustav Allen's theory and you know, uh, a fight will break out as people are arguing over these theories about it. But I sort of look on and say, I think what happens is so big and so important and so layered and so mysterious that all these theories and then some are all in play. And we are never gonna fully understand this. As a matter of fact, I probably shouldn't say this, but after the sermon last night, I thought, yeah, too much information. Uh, uh, I, I was getting the glassy-eyed look, and so, um, so there's just, this is a big, significant issue. And so what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna focus in particular on uh, one. Now, just as I say that, let me, let me just note, uh, by way of reference, the Christus Victor theory is excited about the fact that Jesus defeats evil and Jesus defeats death. So Colossians 2:11 says that uh, Christ died to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this is about Jesus triumphs over evil. Uh, we get the same thing in Hebrews chapter two. Um, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Christ, he too shared in their humanity. So Jesus becomes one of us, that's the incarnation, right? The, sort of the essence of sin is, is we substitute ourselves for God, and the essence of the gospel is that God substitutes himself for us, becomes one of us. Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So part of what happens in Christ's death, one of the reasons that Christ dies is he's, he's defeating evil. Now, he doesn't destroy it yet, but he has defeated it. A second thing that we could say is that he defeats death. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of the Gospels, right? They, they bury him. They kill him, they bury him, and he comes back to life. So one of the big books that was written in the 16th century, it's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Jesus defeated death. And, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the fact that he's the firstborn from the dead, He's the first one to come back to life, and he comes back to life with a physical body, right? It's not that he's a ghost. It's not that he's a, just back in, his, in people's memories, living on in their, in their imagination or in their hearts. No, his body comes back to life. In many ways, it's the same as it used to be, but it's different, and it's, it's immortal, and he's got certain properties as well. He's walking through walls. I mean, there's all kinds of things that make it different. 
but he has defeated death. So part of what happens in Christ's death, one of the reasons he dies is to defeat evil. Another one is to defeat death. But, but we see that additionally, he pays our moral debt. All right, so, so the, big, the big news here is that Jesus Christ dies in our place and his death substitutes for our own. So our moral debt gets paid because Christ takes upon himself the punishment for our sin. Now, this is what I say, this is, there's so much that is going on to get to this point. So in the Old Testament, like if, you, if you've read the Old Testament 20 or 30 times and you start to know what's gonna happen next, you realize there's a, there's a number of points that are just being pounded home. Reading the New Testament without reading the Old Testament is a little bit like watching the Passion of the Christ and not having any context. So you watch for two hours this horrible death and you think, well, what's that all about? Like, why is that happening? Why is that supposed to move me in any certain way? It's just a horrendous death. You gotta have the whole backstory for that death to make any sense. And so in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a, a few ideas that just get pounded home. One, God is holy. God is perfect. God is awesome. God is removed. Everything is, God is so good, so awesome, so perfect that we can't even come into his presence. It's too blinding. When Isaiah is in the presence of God, he falls on his face. He cannot be in the presence of God and live. God is holy. Number two, we're broken, fallen, sinful, greedy, selfish, pride. We, We got issues. As a matter of fact, what many people think is, here's Hitler, here's God, I'm here. You know, I'm not, I'm not like right next to God, but here's Hitler, here's God, I'm here. No, here's Hitler, here's God, I'm here. We're so broken, we can't even see how broken we are. So it, it, the bad news is really bad. We're really broken. And so we are separated, and here's the, here's the gap. Here's what's gotta be reconciled. And so the third thing that gets established in the Old Testament is that we can be forgiven if an innocent third party will die in our place. The wages of sin is death. When I sin, I deserve to die. But if an innocent third party will die in my place, my sins will be forgiven. And that's the basis of the whole sacrificial system. And we see it beginning with in Genesis and Cain and Abel. And then Isaac is supposed to be sacrificed by Abraham. But there's a substitution of an animal for Isaac. And then we get to the Passover. And, and in, the angel of death is going to come and wipe out the Egyptians. But in order for the Jews to survive the visit of the angel of death, they had to kill an animal, a, a, a lamb, and paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so the angel of death will pass over that house. An innocent party has died so that guilty people can be forgiven. And then that's, that's the basis of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. And you've got to understand, this would just be pounded into people's head. 
once the fires of the sacrifice are lit, they go on for hundreds of years, hundreds of years in the temple. They never go out. And, and every day someone is going to the priest and saying, I did this or I didn't do that. I did this wrong or I didn't do the thing that I was supposed to do. And so they would take an animal and they would sacrifice that animal and, and it's being established. I'm guilty, this has to die because of my guilt. And that's why there's so much blood in the Old Testament. And this gets established over and over and over and over. The, the, the blood of, of these animals is being poured out so that guilty people can go free. And then there's another thing that we get, just you, you don't always see it initially, but some, for some reason, a lamb is significant in all this. The Passover lamb and lambs sort of play into all these sacrifices. Then we jump to the New Testament and we learn some things in the New Testament Namely, Hebrews 10, uh, for that the blood of animals is not sufficient to take away the sins of people. Like all these sacrifices have been happening with animals, because it's not another person, because people are guilty, they've got to die for their own sins. All these animals have not actually atoned for, paid the moral debt of the people. It's just a placeholder. And we also see that Jesus is representing himself as the sacrifice. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he says, what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Jesus is that Lamb. And in fact, what we come to understand is the Passover meal that the Jews would have celebrated over a thousand years in a row, every year going to Jerusalem to remember that, that on that day God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery into freedom, for a thousand plus years, they've been going back to Jerusalem and having that Passover meal. At that point, you realize, you know what? All those celebrations were not looking backwards. They were actually looking forward. They were, they were foreshadowing the death that Jesus is going to give because it's always been about him. The whole Old Testament is leading up to, pointing to the death of Jesus Christ, who comes as our perfect representative. He became one of us. He's not an animal, fully human, but fully God. So his death is sufficient for everyone who is looking for someone to pay their moral debt. And so this is the, this is the satisfaction theory. Our, our sins are atoned for Christ on the cross. Now, you should know, look, if you go home and Google this, why did Christ die? You're gonna see all these theories and everything else. You're gonna see controversy over this idea. In the last 10 years, there've been a lot of people who have said, you know what, the idea that God would punish his son, an innocent son, pour out his wrath on this, this, this innocent person for someone else is horrific. It's cosmic child abuse. Now, I think it's shocking. I'm not sure that it's cosmic child abuse. For one thing, Jesus is very clear. No one is claiming his life. He's willingly laying it down. Additionally, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says that the, the God is in the Son, the Father is in the Son, the Trinity is working this out in a way that, that we don't completely understand. And finally, I would just say, if the plan is a father has to kill a son, I would much rather be the son than the father. 
right? I'd take that job a thousand times out of a thousand. Let me be the sacrifice. I do not, I can't think of that. So I just think it, it's, it, is a, it is a profound mystery beyond what we can grasp, but this is the essence of the gospel. Why did Jesus come? Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Hebrews 9, 27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. And keep going. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul announces, for what I received, this is communion language that we use it as we set up communion, for what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. <laughs> Why did Christ die? He died for our sin. He died so that we could be forgiven. Now, I would argue, I would be the first to argue that there are other things that are happening in Christ's death. It is an example for how we should be, live sacrificially. It is a statement that Jesus is gonna be victorious over death and over evil. I think, I think the fact that Christ died for our death is really sort of a penultimate issue, not the ultimate one, because our restoration is just part of a bigger restoration that Christ is, God is gonna reclaim everything and restore everything, including us, and it's all part of, 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 of the glory of God. It all points to God. He's the hero of the story, not us. It, it's all ultimately about him. There's many things going on, but I want you to understand this is the crazy good news claim that you're broken, but God has made a way back for you to God. And the last thing that I'll say is that one of the other reasons we need to understand Christ died for you and for me is because he loves us. Romans 15, uh, John 13. There's no greater love that could be demonstrated than a person die for someone else. There, there's no greater act of love than that you would give your life for someone else, and that's what we see in the gospel. God substitutes himself for you, dies in your place. That is the essence of the gospel. And that is why the cross... <laughs> is the logo of Christianity, is because the cross is the hinge point of history. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for a, a mysterious provision for us that is uh, tens of thousands of years in the unfolding. Uh, beyond which we can comprehend all the things that you've orchestrated to help us understand that uh, you have made a way back for us and that your uh, goodness and love and power and provision is greater than our sin, greater than our brokenness. Nothing that we have done is greater than your 
love and grace for us. We are in awe of that, uh, indebted for eternity that, that someone would die in our place, that we could be restored. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. In your name we pray, amen.